0: this is the book riot podcast a weekly news and talk show about what's new cool and worth talking about in the world of books and reading this is episode 167 we're recording on thursday july 21st i'm rebecca shinsky i'm here with jeff o'neill and we are coming to you from bookriot.com
1: happy thursday rebecca. how are you doing
0: happy thursday to you too you know i'm pretty good i am so glad to see the weekend we've had a long up. week
1: we had a long couple of weeks a lot going on It's been,
0: it's, you know, I think that like when we're really old and we're sitting in our rocking chairs together, like remember the internet, we're going to be like, do you remember July of 2016? Just everybody. Well, 2016 has just
1: been a bear. I mean, it I don't know, I, you know, I, I don't think it's just a meme that's perpetuated itself. Like I've had a lot of life online, you know, uh, someone mm-hmm. was saying the other day, I I think Jesse Dugan, who writes for us, said there's seven years since she joined Twitter. I joined Twitter in April of 2010, Okay, I think. So it's been six years. I don't remember. It's so like... Michelle and I were talking, I was like, is it Twitter? Is it, is it, but I think it's a real thing. Like it's just a crazy year. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a around. real
0: thing too. I've got, I think eight years, seven or eight years on Twitter. And it, it does feel like this feels uniquely horrible. Yeah. Um, or like, just kind of bizarrely dreadful. Yeah, bizarre,
1: yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the, la- the last equivalent, I guess, would have been like 2008 around the housing bubble and the the stock market crash. Like mm. that would have been an insane time for social media to have been yeah. a thing. I think Twitter and Facebook, I think were around then, but they are not what they are, you know, sort of part of the fabric of our, a lot of us, especially those mm-hmm. of us who work and live online a lot our experience. So I maybe some of the fatigue, uh, work's been busy, but also there's just sort of ambient anxiety. Uh world out there. weariness. World weariness, yeah. So all right, well, let's get on to the shows to yeah, our let's first sponsor. let's do some fun stuff. So PRH Audio is back. PRH. So if you're looking for something new to listen to, they're always looking to record new stuff for you and we're going to talk about sci-fi audiobooks right now. So the new Star Wars life debt um by Chuck Wendig is out. I'm actually reading it right now. Not on audiobooks, but I'm reading it right now. It was number nine bestseller on the New York hardco- hardcover fiction list. Oh, wow. Doing really well. Um, it's set in the period between um, Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. So you get some of that fill in. Uh, Chuck's uh, good follow on Twitter, too, speaking of. So that's when they've got their Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. The finale of Justin Cronin's trilogy, The City of Mirrors. Also, Sleeping Giants, which is one I picked, I talked about last week, is my favorite. That's a PRH audio sci fi title. Um, You can go check those out. They've got a whole bunch of them. You can get a free audiobook. So go to tryaudiobooks.com for a free audiobook. And uh, those are all interesting picks. You got Star Wars, you got some Dark Matter, you got some vampire. I don't even know how you... How do you summarize the Cronin Trilogy? It's uh, Vampire Plague Dystopia, whatever?
0: Yeah, yes. Vampire Plague Dystopia. It feels like it and The Strain are sort of of a kind. Yeah. Um, But born of a... This one's like born of a science experiment. The government has a thing that gets out and it turns people into like vampire killing machines. And it's bonkers.
1: And uh, Sleeping Giants is sort of near future sci-fi. Um
0: yeah and told in the um I think the thing that really makes Sleeping Giant stand out is that it's told in the like interviews and documents from a essentially a military investigation yeah. into how a thing happened. So if you liked the layout of the Martian, the mm. voice feels really different to me. Yes. So um, when we, re- when we recommend if you liked the Martian, you want to try sleeping giants. It's, I think it's really relatively specific to if you liked how the Martian was put together as a bunch of snapshots from a bunch of different people's perspectives on a story told through interviews and documents and not just a straight narrative, but really interesting and fun.
1: Um, I was gonna say something else. Oh, also it's it's interviews, so it lends itself especially well, I think, to audio. Because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you're listening basically to the instead of transcripts, you're listening to recordings, uh, is kind of the the metaphor to use. So anyway, thanks so much to tryaudiobooks.com for sponsoring the show. Go check them out. Can I do a random non-book recommendation real uh, quick? Sure. I, I I know a lot of people um uh like Netflix. They let they like the Netflix. Um mm-hmm. and this Michelle and I burn through stranger things. Um, this weekend, the eight episodes in two days we did. Ooh. Um, and it is, it was a lot, it's scary. It's way scarier than I normally like. And in fact, if I knew how scary it was, I probably wouldn't have started it, but I'm glad I did. But if you, if you like Stephen King, hmm. um, it's kind of, to me, it's a mashup of like Stephen King and Goonies. So okay. it, it, there's eight episodes. They're great, great characters. Uh, Winona Ryder is great as this, as kind of, a. A mom that's wigged out, but has every reason to be, but also turns out to be. Here, uh, it's uh, highly recommended. So summertime, non-book, unsolicited recommendation from from, uh, Casa de O'Neal Black over here. So, all right, let's get on the week. Let's go to the show of the week hmm where do you want to start we got we got potpourri it's a potpourri it
0: is it's so much potpourri let's see what do we have here you know let's talk about the one that you dropped in right before we started Mm, the show because it it is noteworthy just for what a big thing it was and how the mighty have fallen i guess right uh which is that the last movie in the divergent series is going straight to is it straight to dvd or straight to tv uh, it's not going to come out in theaters
1: I, i'm not sure it's not going to come out to theaters i don't know if this means it's going to be on netflix you know netflix or it's going to be a big event on or maybe hbo i don't think it's been announced exactly where it's gonna be but it's going straight to the small screen mm-hmm. um i would su- be surprised if it's going to play some random saturday night on nbc but it, it could or uh, maybe it's amazon prime or something like that but it's not going to be in theaters um, the last book in the Divergent series is called Insurgent. It was broken into two, that thing that um, movie franchises have done of late, but the the first of the last two, <laughs> the first movie <laughs> of the third book tanked. Um, and that's, I, I think, The Being Kind um, and, and a, an ignominious end to this series um, on the big screen, but also... An ignominious end to the dystopian YA situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that Mockingbird Part 2 a lot of people had mixed feelings about. Mockingjay. I, mockingbird. <laughs> Jay Part 2, Hunger Games.
0: Surprise, there's a second part to To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah,
1: it's called um, Go Set Yourself on Fire because I can't talk about it anymore. Um, <laughs> It, and it feels like this moment of it, this is the death. Now it goes out with a whimper, not not yep. a bang. Here, um, the fifth wave, the Ricky Yancey book that it's also a series, got made into a movie. It didn't do very well. Um, it kind of feels like it's over. I, I don't know. Maybe we take a moment to to mark yeah, the passing of an we enormous literary pour
0: trend. one out for the big surge of dystopian YA. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Yeah, it feels like it's over. It feels like it's been sort of over in books, too, or at least is dying the kind of slow death that trends in books die, because when a thing becomes big, agents keep buying that thing and editors keep buying it. And then three years later, those books come out. Right. Um, But Kelly Jensen, our great colleague, who's a super YA expert, has been talking for a while about the resurgence in popularity of realistic YA Mm -hmm. fiction. Um, And, you know, we've seen some of that, like Me Before You and The Fault in Our stars and you know stories that lack any magical or sci-fi element to them coming back up through pop culture um, and busting past the book bubble but into tv and movies and i think we're going that direction for for a while
1: yeah it's interesting that it it had um it was the it was the genre so i mean it it changed that moved the needle the hunger games literally moved the needle of publishing and then divergent the divergent series did too scholastic um was it classic that did the di- I, I can't remember what a couple or a couple of the houses actually in their annual reports in years after those big series came out would say we didn't have, you know, one reason that's down is we didn't have a new Hunger Games title come out this year. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a movie this year. Like it really made a, a huge difference. And I think, you know, dystopian YA is an interesting genre. I think it's just going to be a part of the book community now rather than the, you know, driver uh, right, of, yeah, not the, of, of book sales.
0: Not um, the singular focus, for sure.
1: So that's... And in, in Veronica Roth has a new book coming out in January called Carve the Mark, which I believe is more sci-fi than dystopian. Though Those lines get awfully blurry, to, to my untrained eye, for the, the finer points of YA. But um, a two million print run, worldwide, same-day laydown, which means everywhere in the world it comes out on the same day... Um, if i i would be nervous if i were if mm-hmm. i had that done that advance i don't know anything about the book um it was around bea i've heard a little rumblings about it beforehand i don't want to say anything about those just cuz it's unfair uh cuz i i don't actually know just kind of a feel but uh boy that's that's not what you want to see if you're on the hook for 2 million print copies of of Carve the mark right
0: now yeah it's really not uh not not good news it's interesting to see the end of that bubble i guess the bubble really sort of started with t- well harry potter well uh, not dystopian. dystopian but like i've been I've, the narrative i've heard or one of the versions of the narrative that i've heard is that like harry potter did the thing of pointing young readers attention at big books mm. um in you know sort of magical or alternate worlds and that that attention then got redirected like as those kids the original harry potter readers like who were eight and ten when the first book came out as they Aged up, and I'm sure this is an oversimplification, but as they aged that their attention also got pointed towards Twilight, Twilight. and the
1: Hunger Games.
0: Right. Yeah. And here's more big long books in series that stretch out over many years that you have to have the patience to wait for and be, have a sustained interest in Harry Potter proved for this generation of readers that, to publishing at least, that that was a thing that they were interested in and could do and could stay interested in for a while. So it kind of started with those and then we rode through The Hunger Games and Mm
1: -hmm.
0: like on a smaller scale, I guess, The Maze Runner, there were a couple of those and- Do you wonder,
1: I mean, mean, we'd have to put together a timeline, but I wonder if the wave of comic book movies and then Star Wars coming back- did it mm-hmm. subsume some of the the interest and in viewership oh. in movies for 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 this do you think or is it just that this particular it's hard to generalize from yeah. one thing i don't know if it's something specifically about this if this just happened it, to be the last one i, I
0: would sure. be i don't know what the overall like lifetime of a trend is in tv mm. um, or in movies but these you know sort of thematic crests i guess of uh, of different Themes or genres do, it seems to happen. It seems kind of cyclical, but I have no idea what those cycles look like. Like maybe there is a bean counter in Hollywood somewhere who's like, okay, we're officially on the back nine of Mm -hmm. dystopia and now it's time to start figuring out what the next thing is going to be. And that thing's going to last approximately this many years and then we'll go on to the next one.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, it's an it,
0: interesting question,
1: it, and of course, this could all be bogus, and it's just a particular. It's one data point; you can't generalize right. about it. And there's going to be a huge YA dystopian <laughs> YA yeah, title right, release sure. next year. Something there could
0: like. be another one. Um, continuing on the discussion of. Big YA authors yeah. doing, doing things that are new. Um, Stephanie Meyer, the author of Twilight, announced this week that she has a new adult thriller mm-hmm. coming out called The Chemist. This is not her first adult book. She had The Host in 2008, uh, which was a sci-fi sort of situation, I think. I think there was maybe a movie of it. I don't remember what to say. Last year, she released the gender-bent version of Twilight, Mm -hmm. um, which switched the genders of most of the main characters of the novel. We were hearing about that. It was called Life and Death, Twilight Reimagined, around the same time that Grey got announced. Um, And then both of those... It seemed, you know, came and went relatively mm-hmm. quietly, but I really didn't hear anything about that new Stephanie Meyer one. Um, so The Chemist will hit bookshelves on November 15th. Uh, the press release calls it the love child created from the union of Meyer's romantic sensibilities and her obsession with Jason Bourne and Aaron Cross. Okay. Um, and she says, I very much enjoyed spending time with a different kind of action hero, one whose primary weapon isn't a gun or a knife or bulging muscles, but rather her brain. Uh, it's a Email lead in the book. We were sort of speculating offline, like how many chances does Stephanie yeah. Meyer get? Um, and I don't, know. I don't know. I'm kind of. Su- I guess I'm surprised to see this. Well,
1: I mean, there's probably she probably she's a big enough name that she certainly has people who just love Stephanie Meyer. They're going to buy Stephanie Meyer books. I, I guess what's tricky is you know how many people, how many authors can you think of that were known for one big genre or kind of book and then successfully transitioned to a big career in another genre. So this moving from, I guess, paranormal, paranormal romance, YA to mm-hmm. adult speculative sci-fi. I mean, it's hard to even, these are sort of, we're between genres here a lot of the time. It's hard, it's hard to think of an author that makes a jump like that, you know, um, Rowling herself. Would you call the casual vacancy in the Galbraith novels successes. I I don't know the numbers. It's hard for me to say. Um, It's certainly not on the same scale of Harry Potter, though that's that's a very difficult bar. But it's just this is very difficult to do, I think, to Mm -hmm. to transit to sort of be a a writer for YA and then write for adults or vice versa. I I don't know the other way. People have gone the other way, especially well. Um, And maybe, you know, the people like you for one thing going to follow you to something else. It's tricky. It's tricky. Can you think of an example? I'm having a hard time.
0: I'm yeah, I'm having a hard time too. I'm sure that there are some and I I'm not so surprised that publishing is giving her continued no, chances because no. this is a huge name. But I do wonder about the readers. Like oh, yeah. the thing if the thing you loved about Stephanie Meyer was what you got in the Twilight books, then the move to the host is like, that's a strange shift, but it also had some supernatural science fiction-y mm-hmm. elements. Like, it, I guess it depends on how generous you're willing to be with the definition of what a vampire story is mm-hmm. in terms of, like, how far or near on the spectrum it lies to a story about aliens. Um, but then to move more to a straight thriller for an adult audience, like, I, I think that Stephanie Meyer is just writing what she wants to write, sure. which she has, she's in the position to do that. So her swimming pool of money lets her
1: get away with all kinds yeah. of uh, and like, to that,
0: strokes. Right. And to that degree, I think your analogy to the J.K. rowling Galbraith experiment is a good one, that it's an author who's had a lot of success in one arena being like, OK, well, you know, that was nice, but I want, I want to go like splash around in a different pool. Um, and that's what Meyer is doing. So she's conducting these experiments. But I wonder how... My much longer her readers will hang on for them. Like, because there are those readers who love Stephanie Meyer yeah. and will buy something that has Stephanie Meyer's name on it. But this is kind of like, uh like if you read Nicholas Sparks, you're reading Nicholas Sparks right. for a certain reason, for a certain kind of story. And if Nicholas Sparks, you know, whiplashed from what he writes to, to like to writing thrillers or, mm. um, political commentary mm-hmm. or something like, will his readers hang on beyond one or two of those books where it's like, okay, well, I thought I liked you, but it turns out I like you doing a, and now you're doing B and I don't want that thing anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, I
1: guess one, one, um, I guess, uh, check would be if this book doesn't, do much and it goes quietly or mediocrily. Will we talk about the announcement of her next book? Probably not. Right. right? Like if if it doesn't do anything, like the second one is interesting, you know, to see where she's going with it. But the third one, I I don't know. Like recently, I guess Judy Blume wrote an adult novel. I'm not sure that went um, much of anywhere, Mm -hmm. you know, Daniel Handler, AKA Lemony Snicket tried to do an adult thing. I'm not sure that went anywhere. It's just tough. It's just tough to do. Um, to switch like that, because the readerships can be quite different and they want uh, different things. so interesting.: I,
0: Yeah, I think some of that too points at really how much luck and timing are involved yeah. in having a publishing success. Mm-hmm. Um, we all want to be able to tell the story of like, this book sold or my book sold because I really did something because right. of merit. Right, exactly. We want, like, everybody who is successful wants it to just be because they were so good. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I include myself in that assessment. I think that's very human. Um, But... When somebody has a giant success like Twilight, if it's just, if the assumption is like, well, she's magical, like right. you know, Stephanie Meyer poops rainbows, um, then whatever she wants to write, we can sell and we can make into a success because she's so good, um, is not the whole story. A very certain thing was happening mm-hmm. in publishing when Twilight came out, she did a certain thing. She wrote books that people loved, but she also got lucky. She had good timing. She had a publisher that wanted to put a lot of money um, behind her book. The internet was starting to be a thing, and people mm. were building community around it. Like, a lot of really specific things happened around the success of those novels, and that's not to denigrate her accomplishment or anyone No, you still else's. have to be good. You have yeah. to be lucky and good. Um We were just talking this morning, the two of us, about like, ha- launching Book Riot at the time that we launched it, was incredibly lucky for, like, the way that Facebook functioned at the time and that the algorithm wasn't then what it is now. Um, there were which, a bunch of
1: other competing sites.
0: Yeah, like which well. would have gated our traffic in an interesting way. Like, these are just factors, luck and timing and stuff you don't even know you're getting as a bonus at the time. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, very interesting to factors, see. Our factors, yeah. Um, I guess we're waiting, I mean, we're waiting apparently on this new Suzanne Collins trilogy, right? It's kind of one of oh, those yeah, any I'd days. Oh, I totally forgotten
0: that was I thing know, we me were too, until on. we were just
1: thinking, like, that will be an int- another interesting case. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think it's going to be YA. My understanding is it's still going to be YA. So um, the second series syndrome is real.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting question too. Like, do you, if you are Suzanne Collins or Stephanie Meyer, do you keep writing YA because that's the, the category that you've had mm-hmm. proven success in, or do you try to age up with your readers? Right. And they're all in their twenties now, those original Twilight readers. So now do we write an adult book or do you stick with YA and try to get a new generation? Mm-hmm. I, it's, ah, man, that is not a problem that I would want to be trying. to No,
1: though I'm sure the um, piles of money would be a comfortable.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that lessens the blow. Yeah, I'm
1: sure those uh, residuals from uh, Lionsgate <laughs> for the Hunger Games movies aren't too bad. Um, <laughs> all right, let's do some uh, kind of smaller news. We talked recently about um, a service, The Strand in New York was going to do same day delivery mm-hmm. um, for books. Now, this, is a, this service is going sort of one farther in London, where you can get one hour book delivery um, from any of the independent bookstores in London that have signed up. The service is called Near Street, good name, mm-hmm. uh, Small deploying a small army of book-toting scooter and bike messengers around London. Um, basically, you go on their site, pick out what you want, and it will be there in an hour. Pretty simple. Yeah. Pretty simple.
0: For all your emergency yeah. book needs. Um,
1: Again, I guess my reservations are still the same, which is – Under what circumstances do you need a book in an hour?
0: Right. Like, I need Chinese food in an hour. But you can usually wait a day or two for a book.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, You're not getting a deal mm. on the price. It doesn't seem to be. Um, Mm. I guess you get the secondary effects of shopping at an independent bookstore, which is, you you know, supporting the local community and things going on like that. Um, But you don't get... The independent, to me, the single greatest value of an independent bookstore is the bookstore, like going to the bookstore and being in the bookstore. That
0: browsing surprise and delight factor. Yeah.
1: So divorcing that from the book buying experience, where you're still paying full sticker price, plus presumably, well, maybe maybe the messenger service is charging the bookstore a few bucks or something like that.
0: Yeah. As we were talking, I wonder if I wonder if maybe they're just spinning it the wrong way. Like the appealing thing is. I get to buy my book from my bookstore and I'm really busy yeah. and I just want delivery. Right. And it like just kind of happens that you're going to get the delivery within an hour mm-hmm. instead of within a day or two. Um, but I bet that if they, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I bet, but I'd be curious to see what happens if somebody launched a thing like this that was just like, okay, so you want a book from the strand and you don't, Have time or you don't want to take the time to come down to the store, press this button instead, and we'll deliver it to you in 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Like would the use of the service decrease at all? I suspect not. Like I really think that the timing urgency is not the thing that's appealing about this. It's the convenience of get the thing that you want without having to go retrieve it yourself. And packaging it up as like you can get a book in an hour makes for a much sexier headline than like request the book from your bookstore and someone Bring it to you within forty eight hours. Right, you'll get it. You won't have to leave your house. Um, right, but it's not. That's it doesn't so seem to me that like the core of the service to me does not seem to be the the shortened timeline.
1: Because the problem they're solving is that you have to go to the bookstore, which
0: for a lot right. of people
1: is not a problem. That's a pleasure. Like solving right. solving getting getting rid of the pleasure is kind of a tough business model. It seems to me.
0: Yeah, and if going to the bookstore is not the pleasure and the real problem is just Mm -hmm. having time to get to the bookstore, then you can solve that problem without making it about one hour delivery. Um, you can solve it by like, well, you know, you were hoping you could make a trip to the strand sometime this week. And instead sometime this week, someone will bring this book to you. Right.
1: Um, maybe it could be that there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole, uh, cadre of book buyers that this appeals to. I just have a hard time imagining Mm -hmm. myself. Um, But I like people trying stuff. And it's sort of one upping the strand in New York by saying any independent bookstore in the city.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, That like joining of independent bookstores to a service instead of something being linked to just one store, I think is great for solving the reader problem. Because then you get to draw on... All of the stock of all of those bookstores and presumably some of them have different specialties and, you know, we'll have different kinds of stock or different focuses. Um, I think that's really neat. I, w- yeah, I would be interested to hear from our listeners mm-hmm. that if you were going to use a service like this, would you be using it so you could get the thing quick or quickly or would you be using it? Just so that you wouldn't have to go get it yourself um, or both i'm I'm really curious about the appeal. and
1: also, uh, I know a lot of you out there work or have worked in independent bookstores, like is this a service that you see customers demanding or asking for or Even if they don't know, even if they want it, do you think it's something they'd like? Um, You all have greater experience in this than we do for sure. Yes, yeah, we would Let's do our next sponsor. Why don't you just take us away?
0: Okay, yeah, we have every library back this week. Uh, We we talked about every library last week and it was like perfect timing because every library um, runs campaigns to support public libraries because there are organizations that are trying to defund and eliminate libraries all across the United States. Um, You can find an appallingly large list of those groups that are trying to defund libraries at action.everylibrary.org. And uh, the website is just incredibly useful. Um, Every library is an any library initiative anywhere. They are, sorry, they believe that any library initiative anywhere matters to every library everywhere. And they're making it really simple for people who care about libraries in their local communities and outside their local communities to see what's going on in attempts to affect library legislation and funding and also very simple then to take action around it, whether that's contacting one of your local representatives or signing a petition. There are just you know tons of things. Uh, We've been talking on the show recently about my return to my public library, and that's been really a cool part of my reading life lately, getting to rediscover the love of the public library. But we talked last week about Carla Hayden being appointed finally um, to the Librarian of Congress, and every library was working on that. There had been this long, drawn-out process of would she get a hearing or not, um, to be confirmed in that position. And everylibrary.org was running petitions and giving uh, voters information about how to contact their senators to demand that there be a vote um, to confirm or not so that there could you know, actually just be some motion uh, on Carla Hayden as the Librarian of Congress. And right before we recorded last week's show, she got the position and we got to celebrate that. That's just one example of what every mm. library is doing. You can find out so much more by going to action.everylibrary.org slash support local. Um, you can make a contribution to help them fight libraries. You can sign petitions. You can learn about what's going on in your local library community and in the U.S. library communities at, uh, at large. Again, that's action.everylibrary.org. Uh, I just think this is a cool service. I'm really glad to have them sponsoring the show. So thank you, Every Library. And again, it's action.everylibrary.org.
1: So this is a chart. I have no idea how to make sense out of. Um, oh no, where they, are we? Well, going? this is the Scribd. So Scribd released data about audiobook listening by state and city. Um, okay. Again, this is for Scribd subscribers, so this doesn't capture Audible or Downpour or whatever else it might be. This they're analyzing the, because this is what they have. They analyzed three point nine million hours of listening okay. behavior between um, December first, twenty fourteen, and January thirty first, twenty sixteen. And basically, they, this is an infographic about the cities and states that listen to the most and least audiobooks on Scribd. Okay. And there, I guess there's a couple of patterns. So if you live in the southwest and, and the broad southwest, all along the coast really going Louisiana, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, California, there's a whole swath of green, which means they listen to more than average. Mm -hmm. The further north you go, uh, I'm sorry, I've got that backwards, Um, less than average. So the southwest less than average. And the further north you go, you get more and more all the way into the Great Plains, which listen to the most like Montana, um, Wyoming, the Dakotas, Minnesota, listen Hmm. to a whole bunch. The Mid-Atlantic is about average. Uh, it, it's very I, – I thought it would be correlated to commutes, like the longer the average commute would be, yeah. the more audiobook listing. But New York, which has the longest commute, 30 minutes, is like the least – one of the least um, audiobook savvy or uh, I guess happy states, at least hmm. according to script Here are the most um, – among the most uh, audiobook loving st- states are – let's see I just had it here um Utah Idaho and Maine those are the top three
0: so interesting and those
1: that live, live in New York Connecticut and New Jersey are the least mm-hmm. um, cities that listen to the most audiobooks Salt Lake okay uh, Minneapolis Charlotte Sacramento and Omaha hmm. least cities Madison Wisconsin Brooklyn Pittsburgh and Buffalo I, I don't know what to – I don't understand. Uh, I'm
0: putting on my detective hat. Uh-huh. This is confounding factors. Like it has to be – it has to be some sort of scribed, factors. Some sort of
1: scribbed bubble, like weird scribbed well, adoption there's patterns?
0: Like, yeah. Like by the time scribbed rolled out with audiobooks, the people who were first going to be into audiobooks very likely had Audible subscriptions.
1: So you think these are late um, adopters that are using Scribd most often? Oh, he or, did a sick burn on Utah. I'm so sorry, Utah. Rebecca
0: just slammed <laughs> you. Or they could be like audiobook lovers who used their Audible stuff and then they looked to Scribd to fill in. We have no idea how many users this is. Like. Right. And Scribd has been really cagey about how many users for their subscription service there have been from the get go. Um, all we know is 3.9 million hours of audiobook listening. Mm-hmm. But, like, it, w- if it's possible that there are like 10 people in Salt Lake City each listening to a yeah. lot of audiobooks and that's driving up that average, I just have very many questions. And, like, with Brooklyn, being, you know, in New York, which tends to be tech savvy. And as you said, many people have long commutes. Like, I think of New York as sort of on the the front edge yeah. of how people are going to occupy their time while Though commuting. Though you can
1: read on the subway a regular book. Mm-hmm. So that I mean, I wonder, you do have a longer commute, but you also have competition from Print or, or, right? You fewer people,
0: you fewer people commuting by like sitting in their cars, which is a really optimal, yeah. There's a lot we don't know, you're right, because we don't know the spread. Like, what's the spread between
1: most and least that would get a state a different color? Because, like, here's one so, Utah is the most, but its neighbor to the west, Nevada, is among the least, and its neighbor to the south, Arizona, is also among the least. Mm -hmm. What, What? like you cross the state border and suddenly you're like way less likely to listen to an audiobook through Scribd. It is weird. Um, it it is strange. It does seem to me that there is a relatively mild correlation between population and listening habits. So the hev- the the more mm-hmm. heavily populated states tend to listen to least. Um, which maybe you can make some sort of argument for that. Maybe longer driving distances, or- more car time.
0: Well, the more people you have in a sample, too, the more likely it is that their numbers regress toward the mean. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Could be the case. Um, so this is a big huh. But you, if you can, um, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, you can find uh, links to the t- show, the stories we talk about in the show, and all back episodes at bookwrite dot slash so listen. You can listen. You can find the show there. If someone else has a theory, it is. But there's some. Then there's some weird consistencies, right? Because like you get. Uh, you get the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, Ohio, all the way up to Michigan. Like there's this big Midwest – into the Midwestern mm-hmm. wall. And Illinois listens to a little bit more but then also contiguous with Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, and Can Like there's some – like if you look at it with your – if you kind of squint your eyes, there's some – but then there's some real outlier states too. So I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. – th- Maybe there's, like, pockets of communities that, for whatever reason, love Scribd. Like, it took off. Like, you know, you have these microclimates of...
0: Their Facebook ads did better in certain states than others, and then it ran through who those people know. Like, Mm -hmm. there are so many strange factors that this could be um, but I'm pretty I, I'm like giving very hard side eye to this diagram that bas- that like presents itself as like these are just the places that listen to the moat like when I'm, right. I'm pretty sure no <laughs> Yeah,
1: and we don't know if this is per capita, this is total hour. I mean, who knows what there's this. too.
0: There are too many things that aren't indicated yeah. here, and I'm positive that there are things we're not even thinking of. Oh, could sure, be. it
1: could be GDP, could be race. I mean, there's a whole bunch yeah. of you know, smartphone adoption, like. All, all, all sorts of, of Now, if Audible
0: stuff. wanted – like who has uh, – Audible has all those, you know, jillions of users. If they wanted to make a thing like this, I would be very interested in what that would look like and then in how different it would be. Yeah, States
1: with good um, library systems, we get audiobooks would be – I sure. mean, there's all sorts of weird stuff going mm-hmm. on. But you know what? Thank you for – I mean, they gave us something.
0: Yeah. You know, they, yeah. They, they
1: did something. So uh, th- there it is. A, a weird – uh puzzling
0: it's a story. weird something it's a
1: weird something all right uh let's see where are you want to go next
0: hmm. Hmm. do you want to let's just have a happy moment for a minute yes yes let's have a happy moment because you we were talking movie. at the top of the show about how things have just been blah lately mm-hmm. um but here is a happy moment this is just a really sweet story um A woman back in 2012, her name is Victoria Carlin, uh, she took a shine to whomever was the who was working behind the curtain at the Waterstones Oxford Oxford Street Twitter account Waterstones is the big British uh, bookseller chain and she tweeted like well I'm in love with whoever is manning the at Waterstones Oxford Street account be still my actual beating heart Um, just ironically or not ironically but something like ironically uh, at the time back in 2012 the tweet from them that she was responding to had to do with Pokemon (laughs) which we're having another moment of um and they whoever was running that account responded to her his name is jonathan o'brien the two of them tweeted back and forth for a while and then eventually met up in person she's a woman after your own heart jeff because she went to the bookstore with donuts Mm. They ate their donuts, Jonathan took his lunch break, they went out together for a short walk, and then later they went to a secret cocktail bar. uh, And they had been dating ever since, then they got married last week. So, a love story born on Twitter, but also with a cool bookish twist. I just love this. I linked
1: to it in Critical Linking, I think, this morning, and I said it's like something out of a Nora Ephron screenplay.
0: Yeah. It really is. It's, it does. It feels like the logical extension, like Nora Ephron for the 21st century. Yeah.
1: DM me, um, a romantic comedy by Nora <laughs> Ephron.
0: Sliding into your DMs. Sliding into your DMs. <laughs>
1: um, It's a good story. Some great pictures.
0: Uh, yeah, there are some lovely pictures. Um, it, I, it's just a happy, nice moment. It's only kind of bookish. but Well, you know.
1: It is. Uh, It's
0: bookish. Yeah, you know, I mean, bookstores, and they read things together, and I think somebody gave someone else a copy of The Wizard of Oz as a gift Mm -hmm. on one of their early dates, but um, you know, if you're out there, like, slogging away, running a a bookstore's Twitter feed or a publisher's Twitter feed, this could happen. Yeah,
1: (laughs) this could happen (laughs) to you, another movie. Um, Just
0: keep, just be charming.
1: (laughs) So I, I want to talk about this story. It's there's a there's a lot here. Um, this is a report about romance book sales.
0: Ah, there's so much. Uh, there's so,
1: there's so much here, and I, it's presented in this like really long, what's it called, SlideShare PowerPoint presentation. It's so the top. I, I guess okay. Let's break it down this way, and then you can tell me if uh, that made any sense. Basically, this this presentation is like how big is the romance industry in the U.S., you know, the romance mm-hmm. book industry. How big is it? Where are people buying it? What formats? What's going on? Um, so they looked at Nielsen BookScan. They look at Arthur earning, author Earnings. They got numbers from Kobo, Nook, Google annually. So the, the large, the big picture that I think is really interesting is that in print, romance is about 4.4% of Nielsen BookScan units. And Nielsen BookScan is its it's the canonical number for print sales, and it has its problems, but it's what we have. Um, on ebook, however, romance is 45% of Amazon ebook paid units. It's Bananas. a huge number. Um, romance sales are underreported, and why is that? Well, 89% of all romance sales are digital, and more than 50%. Are self-published, which is a huge—I mean, yes. a huge number. Sixty percent of all U.S. romance sales are not tracked by any traditional industry metric.
0: Just let that sink it in. It is a
1: crazy, that crazy number.
0: Two-thirds of U.S. romance sales just exist in a black box.
1: Yeah, it is a crazy number. Um, Amazon has seventy-four percent of the paid ebook market for romance. Apple is next at 11, then Nook at five, Kobo three, Google Play Books two, and then other two. Um, It's a crazy number. There's $262 million a year in US Kindle romance author earnings. It's a huge number. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's see. There are, you know, there are, let's see, 1,200 Amazon romance authors making between ten and twenty five thousand dollars a year, more than six hundred making between twenty five and fifty thousand three hundred and eighty five making between fifty and a hundred thousand, two hundred and fifty authors that make a hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand. There are fifteen romance authors making more than a million dollars on Amazon romance sales alone 35 making between 500,000 and a million and almost 100 making between 250 in five hundred thousand dollars.
0: Who are they? I want to There's know.
1: There's a. I mean, I, I don't. Could we come up with ninety five literary fiction authors making more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year? Could we? I mean, no. I'm serious. Could we do it?
0: No, no, because they all still have day jobs for a reason.
1: They, they don't all, but but it's. Well, yeah, I yeah, mean, okay. it's Most. crazy. Or teaching it is jobs and like two hundred. That is a lot, a lot of money.
0: Like I think to come up with ninety five authors of literary fiction who are making two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars a year, we would have to be able to include dead people who are considered canonical. Yeah, and
1: that's not only really making a living nope. technically. Well, um, right,
0: you're making yeah. it
1: dead. It's it's <laughs> a crazy number. I don't know. Again, I don't know if these. Maybe some of these authors are dead. I I, I, I honestly oh, don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, which which genres earn the most money? Contemporary, by far, earns the most. Um, followed by romantic comedy, I guess. The, now we're really into the granular subgenres mm-hmm. of romance. No, I, I didn't know that, for example, new adult and college romance was a specific thing. For example, um, sports, so so on and so forth. Uh, just a crazy, crazy amount. And I should say, these Amazon published, self published numbers don't go into the big top line numbers we talk about when the American Association of Publishers. Releases their financial results, right? They last I think it was week the week last week or the week before, it was announced that um, the Associate of American Publishers announced that they did twenty-eight billion dollars in sales last year. And this doesn't get this no. isn't the, the the Kindle sell all the the whole self-published market doesn't get put into that. So we've been talking of late, and there's been a lot of discord recently about like ebooks are dying and blah, blah, blah. But that really is in the traditionally published market that does not account, none of those numbers account for the self-published market. And that's the place where there's a huge opportunity for people to sell and buy books. And by and large, it seems like the big publishers are just missing this out because 67% of them are, are self-published. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, they don't need it. Um, it's It's really interesting. I think, I thought recently that there's, you could make a lot of comparisons between romance as a genre and blogs as a, as a form.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Where, you know, there was, it's a form of writing. It's an audience that, you know, you think of book write sort of the romance of the book, you know, media world, right. Hmm. You know, we're Mm self-published, you know, for all intents and purposes. Um, We're taking advertising dollars from, uh, you know, New York times and entertainment weekly and the Washington post um, jobs in, in book coverage at those places that have gone down where we've hired. We're payout, you know. Uh, and again, it's not a zero-sum game. I, I'm sure more jobs have been lost than gained, but it doesn't get factored into that big market. But there was a different kind of demand for a different kind of content presented in a different kind of way, and it's a huge, a huge uh, market. Well, what do you think about all of this?
0: Um, I, it just sort of boggled my yeah. mind looking at these slides and I was thinking about, um I don't know if Amanda mentioned it on this show with me recently or if it was just, I can't remember if it was a conversation we were having on the air or off, but we were talking about a few of our Book Riot contributors who read a lot of romance yep. and who want to read very diversely. And if you want to read diversely in romance, or really in all, in many things, but especially in romance, you have to be reading a lot of self-published, mm-hmm. like that is the way to go. Um, how publishing treats the romance genre is really problematic and confusing in some ways. And I, I wonder if that's part of what's going on here is these authors for whom like their work, there is an audience for their work, um, and they were never going to get big publishing deals, but those readers are still hungry for it anyway. Like you and I have been talking recently about how for a little while there was that thing where it looked like self-publishing was going to be the way of the future for like everybody or for a lot of people. And instead, each year, there are just a few big successes. But I think romance might be the exception to that rule that, you know, such a huge percentage of these sales are coming out of self-published romance authors because there is a market for that book. And now we have the evidence that there's a market for that book, but mainstream traditional publishing was not going to pick those authors and those books up or hasn't figured out yet that those readers do exist and do want those books and are going outside of mainline publishing to get them. Hmm. Um, I think that part like that part of it is really interesting. Like why is self publishing so big um, in romance? And I think it it has to do with publishing not super understanding what the romance reader is mm-hmm. looking for um, in a lot of ways.
1: Romance but readers to, like, also the, read a lot. They yes. read a million titles a year. If you're a, if you're a serious or even a moderate romance reader, I would guess that the titles per year you read are just way, way – like more than a standard deviation away from sort of even – sort of a, an average book riot reader who doesn't read um, romance. Digital also, since they – I think also there's some pricing interesting things that are going on. Like it's hard mm-hmm. to sell a, a mass market paperback for three ninety nine dollars or $2.99, which according to this study are the most popular and highest earning price points for ebooks. books mm-hmm. um, So if you're reading a lot, you're going to be more cost conscious because you've got more titles to buy. So – digital titles can deliver on that volume plus price proposition mm-hmm. that romance readers seem especially attuned to. Um, why, se- you know, why self-published should be such a big part of it? I don't know. Is it our, our, our traditional publisher snobs, right? Is it that they're not in independent bookstores? We hear this over and over again. Uh, why is this underserved seemingly by traditional publishing?
0: Yeah. I I think there's no question that the romance reader is underserved by many aspects of the book industry from the indie stores that don't stock romance out of reasons of snobbery or that assumption that their customers don't want it. And then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, Mm -hmm. it's not on the shelves. And so no one asks for it. So then they can say, well, no one ever asks us for it. So why would we stock it? Um, There's, there's that. And I think it was just last year um, when we were watching coverage coming out of the romance writers of America conference that they had folks on stage from major publishers that have either romance arms or our major romance publishers um who were being asked questions about why are your imprints not inclusive? Mm-hmm. Why is there so little representation of people of color and of non-hetero stories? And the answers were like, well, we have one imprint for that or we don't think there's a market for it. Mm-hmm. Um And not thinking there's a market for it, like not thinking those readers exist when they're asking you, where is the stuff that I want to read? I do want to read it is just, Wrong-headed, um, and the siloing of things in in one imprint. When you have the opportunity to, you know, sure have a dedicated imprint that is all about being representative and inclusive, but why are not all of your imprints representative mm-hmm. and inclusive? And um, there's a lot of uh, all of those things happen all over publishing, and then you add the like romance snobbery on top of it, and I think it just compounds to passionate romance readers who don't just want to read stories about straight white people have a lot of problems to solve as readers and self-publishing has helped them solve that mm. um, and has helped writers who want to serve that audience, you know, get in there um, in a more effective and efficient way than it's happened in like literary fiction.
1: I also wonder too, that considering the rapidity with which romance readers will go through titles, that traditional publishing is slow. I, mm. I wonder if they just can't keep, if they just can't, they're not built um, and again, there's there's Avon and Harlequin, and I don't know, I'm just sort of speculating here. I'm sure many of you out there know more about this than I do. But it seems like there's a huge market out there for more dedicated digital romance titles, um, and that pub- that traditional publishing is missing out on it. And why that is, is super interesting to me.
0: Yeah, the series time, like publishing of a series timeline does get shortened, uh, I think, usually in romance. Like Sarah McLean's books come out six months apart. Mm -hmm. So a series that she does with four books in it only takes two years to deliver all four of those titles, which is much faster than series and other arms of publishing, Um, which we should also just note these romance writers are working their butts Oh,
1: they write so much.
0: They write so much and so fast. And uh, if Sarah McLean could write a book a month, people would buy yeah. a Sarah McLean book a month or a Beverly Jenkins book a yeah, month. Seriously. Um, and some of that too, I think it's just capped by like, how quickly can these humans make this thing? Uh, but they're they're so prolific and there just have to be more of them. But I think self-publishing has really answered a call that traditional publishing was too slow to get to.
1: There's... We can't get into more of this. this is, there's a whole bunch more here, including like the, what seems to be the optimum sales price, optimum mm-hmm. book lengths, what genres, how they sell over time, how many books is the optimum to have in a series. Like, there's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff here. And if you're a romance fan or just really a fan of book selling yeah. in general, I highly recommend scrolling through it. A link in the, the show notes. And the comments
0: are really interesting yes. too. <laughs>
1: comments are very interesting. Uh, let's do our last Sponsor. If I can get it to, uh, to to open, can I get this link to open? Yeah, here we go. I can. Yeah, okay, yeah. It's the crow, it. the crow girl. The crow girl. You know, it, I, I like a little bit of scary, but just just a little bit. And I think this is kind of the right, you know, the the right um, mix for me—a terrifying, addictive, psychological thriller for readers of Joe Nes. Is it Joe? Yo. It's yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nesbitt. I say knew I said it wrong, but I didn't know how to say it right. Stieg Larsson's begins in a Stockholm city park. Where the abused body of a young boy is discovered, soon the corpse of two more children are found, and it becomes clear that serial Co is at large. There's a detective superintendent, Jeanette Kilberg, unravels the case. Undeniable that these murders are only the most obvious evidence of an insidious evil woven deep into Swedish society. You gotta love these Norwegian crime writers mm-hmm. who like use sort of crime to talk about underlying uh, social problems. The author is Erik Axel Sund. Um it's uh, it's out from Knopf. And uh, go check it out. I it's 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 really one of those page-turning, if you like Norwegian, Scandinavian, not Norwegian, Scandinavian, this is Swedish, crime, this is a new author. If you like the Henning McKells, your Ja Nesbos, your Stieg Larssons. it's called The Crow Girl. We had a great skin on the site for it the other day, super creepy, beautiful mm-hmm. skin. You won't miss it in the bookstore. Um, go go check it out. It's called The Crow Girl. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show.
0: All right. Where you want to end? Well, you know, we, we,
1: I, I was thinking, um, what, what are you looking forward to in the fall here? Oh, what, 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 am I what are you looking forward for in the fall? I, I, the reason I bring this up is, um, I saw someone galley bragging about Zadie Smith's swing time showed up at their door. Oh, and that's my, fancy. I don't often have like physical jealous reactions, but I definitely did. And it sort of mm-hmm. got me excited for the, the fall coming up. So I thought we might talk about that for a few. I, I'm pu- I yeah. wasn't on the agenda, so I'm putting you on the spot. So that's one okay, for Okay, yeah,
0: me. no. I'm like frantically logging yeah, into yeah. my able oh,
1: <laughs> Well, I can vamp for because I got a couple more. Um, okay. I just read that the, uh, the, the new Jonathan Saffron Foer. Here I Am, got a star review in Publishers Weekly sounds really okay. interesting. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the Underground uh, Railroad um, mm-hmm. by Colson Whitehead.
0: Yeah, that's on my list. It's coming out
1: in October. Um, those are, those are my three, I think. Those are the three I'm looking forward to the most. You got anything you're looking forward to?
0: Yeah, let's see. Um, I just recently heard about Intimations, which is a short story collection by Alexandra Kleeman. Mm. Um, she's the one who wrote, You Two Can Have a Body Like Mine, which was so big last year. And I have not read that yet. I can't believe that Liberty hasn't broken up with me for not <laughs> having read it yet. She loved it so much. Um, but I understand that Kleeman does you know, some like weird experimental-ish things yeah. with her fiction, and I, so, I can have a hard time hanging with a whole novel that does that, but I love it. I can do it with a short story. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to Lady Cop Makes Trouble by Amy Stewart, which is the um, it's the second in her series that started with Girl Waits with Gun last year, which is inspired by like one of the first female sheriff's. In the country and the first, the first book was just so much fun to read. Um, I've had my eye on Underground Railroad forever. And then Lisa and Kevin both talked about yep. it as their most anticipated title for fall when, uh, when we did that halftime show. So I've been thinking about that. Let's see what else. Um, I'm your McBride, the lesser bohemians. Mm-hmm. I've been looking forward to.
1: The Mothers by Britt Bennett I'm looking forward Yes, to. that
0: one looks so good. And I've heard so many good things about that. Um, there's a new Sonali dev. She wrote The Bollywood Bride yeah. and A Bollywood Affair. Um, her new one is called A Change of Heart. I'm look, I'm really you know, interested in that. What else? What else? Um, ah. On the spot, not fair. No, I know. I, I, I didn't get to hit you
1: with it. I, I'm sorry. That was that was unfair. <laughs> sure. The hag seed, Margaret Atwood's yeah. um, entry into this series that Hogarth is doing of novel, mm-hmm. you know, modern novel retellings of Shakespeare plays. I believe hers is based on the Tempest. Uh, yes, the Tempest. It's the it's. it's um, mm-hmm. As a fa- failed theater director teaching a course at a local prison, <laughs> only Atwood could do something like that.
0: Um, yeah. Let's see. Um, oh, last year, I loved Miss Laid by Nell Zink, and she has a collection of short fiction coming out called Private Novelist. Um, I'm really looking forward to Ooh, that Ooh, Today one. Will Be
1: Different by Maria Semple.
0: Mm-hmm. We're both
1: looking forward to it. She wrote uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which we both loved, and- I know.
0: Uh, one I'm going to read really soon I saw him speak at a lunch at BEA as IQ by Joe Ide. Mm. and it's a like it's a modern day detective story set in LA about a kid who, uh, like is an outsider kind of, kind of gets beat up on, but is really smart and has read all of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, and eventually, uh, becomes his, uh, his nickname is Q. And eventually he becomes like the sleuth that the LAPD hires when they can't figure out a thing for themselves.
1: So, um, um with nonfiction, I generally don't, I don't know what's coming out that I'm going to be interested. I, I'm much more of a trailing indicator person for nonfiction, mm. but I do have one on my list. It's called Other Minds: The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness. Oh, um, it's a combination. Uh, it's a the prof- the guy who wrote it. His name is uh, Godfrey Smith. He's a professor, philosopher of science mm. at CUNY, and it's a marine biology, neurobiology, evolution. Uh, my Cerebral Cortex is certainly firing. I, that one's coming out in December and I cannot wait for it. That's an FSG uh, title. So,
0: My uh, super excited Cerebral Cortex. Uh, I've got two memoirs that I can't wait to read. Brian Cranston uh, yep. has A Life in Parts which is coming out I think in November um, of course of, of him of Breaking Bad fame and Anna Kendrick, my Patronus mm-hmm. <laughs> um, her novel Scrappy Little Nobody is coming out November fifteenth and uh it better be good because otherwise i'll be so sad <laughs>
1: <laughs> otherwise you're gonna switch your you have to search around for i'll
0: like have to call in sick because i'll just yeah. be sitting on my corner watching pitch perfect on that's repeat that's too
1: funny um anyway that's our that's our brief I the one that's coming out real soon is nk Jemison's new book the obelisk yes. it's coming out in august um i'm super excited that. Uh,
0: there are some big, I'm looking like there are some big publishing days coming up. Yeah. Very quickly. You know in what I haven't year. heard anything
1: about that I'm excited is um, Known and Strange Things by Teju Cole, his book about yeah. photography.
0: I just requested a galley of that yesterday. Well, have you heard anything about it? No. It's coming like, out as a oh, paperback Teju original. Cole essays, a, uh, okay.
1: I, again, I, you've probably heard me talk on the show. I loved both Every Day is for the Thief and Open City, his first two novels. Um and he's been writing about photography for the times um but this is a collection of essays i i under, my understanding is it's about um photography but also travel and history and you know the things that touch upon it using photography as <clears throat> a lens um to look at <laughs> oh, to look I at a, a whole bunch there. of different things so um
0: I'm on a sooner timeline, not quite fall, but it'll be uh, later in the summer. Jasmine Ward has edited ah. a collection of essays called The Fire This Time, uh, which you know takes its inspiration from James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time uh, as a discussion, uh, a new generation's discussion about race in America. Um, I'm looking forward to that and to all of the ways that it will break my brain and my heart, I'm sure. Mm. Um, that's August 2nd. I'll be reading that one soon. Um what and now? I'm just like down the rabbit hole. we well, gave at, him a
1: good taste. That's that's a pretty good taste.
0: That, that is anything else? Yeah, if
1: you want to speak now or for hold, ever hold your peace until next week, uh,
0: you, can come back. you know, there's one. There's one. I contain. There's one I'm excited about. I think it's going to be my like trying to scratch my Siddhartha Mukherjee mm. itch, but like no one quite can. Yeah. But I'm going to try. Um, Ed Yong has a book coming out called "I Contain Multitudes: The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life," mm. and I'm. Like, so excited about the reference in the title. <laughs> the I Contain Multitudes, but it's a book about microbes and germs and what we're made of. Um, I'm super looking oh, forward to that. Oh, Fate
1: of the Tierling!
0: Oh, right, the last
1: Erica Johansson. I can O'Neill's Razor can be satisfied, and I can, the third one will come out. I'm very excited for that. That's gonna be my Christmas <laughs> reading for sure.
0: Ah, those will be Christmas, then. Yeah,
1: the uh, Lauren Graham's book is coming out. Uh, let's see, uh, it's kind of Interesting. Yeah, that's a pretty. Oh, the good Amy
0: Schumer novel come, uh, not novel, novel, the Amy Schumer no, that <laughs> memoir would <be> comes. <laughs> yeah, that I would. That would be interesting. Um, her memoir, "The Girl with the Lower Back Tattoo," will be out August sixteenth, my- and that is that'll be interesting too. Michael
1: Shabin has a new book coming out, Moonglow, in November, which I've heard nothing about.
0: Yeah, no, that's brand new news I, to I'm me. Looking, I'm now looking at um, my spreadsheet
1: because we're we're doing <laughs> um, competitive oh.
0: spreadsheeting. <laughs> Now we're just we're gonna get all these comments that are like why did you guys just keep saying words <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, behold the tree the dreamers by Imbolo uh, Mbue buay uh, is aug- August twenty third and that was one of the big um, advance the the high advance debuts mm-hmm. of the year that's coming out from Random House um, lots of good paperbacks coming yeah. out later. And, oh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has a book out about race.
1: Yes, I saw that.
0: August 23rd, Writings on the Wall, Searching for a New Equality Beyond Black and White. Um, that should be great.
1: Yeah. There are books, of, man. There's a book, Time Travel by James Gleick, which is sort of a cultural history of time. I'm looking interested. Mm. That's Pantheon mm-hmm. coming out in September. Lesser Bohemians, you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Pretty good. And then, gonna, you know, Jerusalem by Alan Moore. I'm not sure I'm going to read this thing. It's like—is that
0: the one that's like a it's giant? It's a jillion brick?
1: thousand pages long. We've been working on it for like 20 years. I'm more interested to see like the reaction to it. If it's if, if it's people rave about it, I might dip my toe into it. But that's one that uh, I think will there'll be people talking about it for good or for ill. Uh, I don't think it's one that can be ignored. Um, that's a big one. All right, we, let's call that a show.
0: That is, that's a good show.
1: Yeah, as always, you can find show notes, links to the stories we talked about, to this episode and back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. You want to give us comments, feedback, books? You, let's see, what are we looking for? We want if you're thinking uh, an hour long delivery service for independent bookstores was a thing you or customers would like, let us know about that. Uh, what was oh, ro- uh, we asked about romance. Were we going ask something about romance?
0: I think we were doing a like look at more of the slides. Oh yeah, and tell you go check up. Yeah, yeah, that
1: thing. <laughs> Um, and then, and then uh, let us know. Also, um, Book Riot Live tickets. You can yes. buy them. What's the offer code and for us? Wheelhouse? The, our
0: offer code is Wheelhouse. Get 20
1: bucks off. Go check it out. Book dot com. Uh, we'll talk to you guys uh, next week.
0: Have a good one.